out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall and I'm going to be with you for the next probably 60 minutes. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade and sometimes before, sometimes after. We like to play loose and free. Also, as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Hazel O'Connor. Yes, Hazel O'Connor, famous for all those big hits back in the 80s, including Eighth Day and Will You, and starred in the film Breaking Glass. Anyway, since those uh, heady days in the late 70s and early 80s, she's been making music and has released an enormous amount of albums. And this year, 2020, was about to do various tours, including one with Toya Wilcox, which might or might not still happen. But anyway, if you want to know any more information, she has a very good um, website. Just Google Hazel O'Connor. And also she's on probably Facebook as well. But anyway, after a few minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, we got down to that exciting question I'd love to ask. (laughs) It's an opener, yes, about the early years, the formative years. Hazel, save the listener from falling asleep. Anyway, enjoy. Make notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you're paying attention. But yes, after asking her about how it all began, this is it. Try and keep it potted, um, not too... uh, Right, so, in my, in the 60s, um, the minute I started to listen to music, let's say, um, I can't remember, I was probably about 11, living in Coventry, and um, 11-year-olds could go to Saturday morning dancing at the Locarno. Um, so I started to go dancing. <laughs> and all the tunes that were happening in those days were things like the mod music, um, so I became a huge fan of Small Faces um, and uh, the um, Tamla Motown thing. Yes. And so the first record I bought was by Nina Simone, who I thought initially was a guy singing. I didn't care. I just loved the music, which was a song called I Got Life. Oh, and yes. um, I, then I searched the rocket record shops and said, can I have that song when it goes, I've got my arms, got my legs, got me thing, you know that. Yes. And it uh, turns out that uh, it was this wonderful artist, Nina Simone, and I've been a fan ever since of hers, um, and probably a fan of unusual female voices too, to be honest. So from then on, after dancing around my handbag as an 11-year-old, I um, did a lot of drawing and painting. I loved all that. And so the picture of everybody's head was all Hazel's going on to art college, you know, and all this stuff. And then uh, when I was 15, 16, I went on a holiday with my friends to uh, Morocco with her sister, really. Her sister was the adult and we were the kids. And um, I was raped by um, an Algerian guy. And it sort of changed my life and my outlook very considerably because I would have been going back to school to do my fifth, fifth year, my sixth year, sorry, my sixth year, which is when you start to do your A-levels and yes. all that stuff. And um, 
instead it kind of turned my head around 360 degrees freaked me out so much didn't tell anybody um and uh but when i did go back to school i felt very changed and i really didn't want to go back to wearing uh navy blue pants and playing hockey i just couldn't no. i didn't want to you know it just all seems stupid and um I tried to get into an art college in Coventry, where I'm from, um, and they wouldn't take people that were 16. They would only take 18-year-olds. But somebody told me there was an art faculty in Leamington Spa where they took 16-year-olds if you had an exceptional art portfolio, and you could also do your pre-degree course there, and you could take your A-levels. So I got myself into that college and um, was very happy there for quite a few months. Um, but I realized that I didn't fit. I was like a square peg in a round hole, a round hole in a square. Oh, yeah. Yes. It wasn't good. Um, and eventually I decided that I was going to leave and I was going to go and live in Amsterdam and be a hippie. Wow. Um, I, I, you know, it was all started by something again. You know, I think it was we had our Easter holiday break, me and my. Um, mate that went to college together had looked up at the sky and I said, oh, let's go somewhere. And we hitchhiked to Ibiza. Uh, and I told my mum where I was going. I told the truth. She was, didn't like it, but she she was a cool mother who just thought she has to make her mistakes herself within reason. You know, she didn't know the stuff that happened to me, not until I brought my book out years later. But anyway... Um, I told my mum, my friend, who was two years older than me, hadn't told her mum and dad. We went to Ibiza for our Easter holidays, um, and we got stuck there. Uh, <laughs> and we were late coming back to college, and so her mum and dad went crazy, went to the college. She'd lied and said she was going with a college outing, and then when the parents had gone, you know, where's Anora? Um, they, they said, we don't know. Um, and so we got caught out, and when we got back, um, Nora, who was older than me, got told off big time. Me, who was two years younger, was threatened with expulsion from the college immediately, that I was a bad influence. And uh, that was the point, to be honest, when I just stuck two fingers up in the air and thought, well, F you, I'm going to go and do my own thing because all the hippies we'd met in Ibiza had said, it's great, go to Amsterdam. Yes. So that was my first port of call. So I went to Amsterdam, uh, didn't tell my mother, obviously. She was very, very hurt uh, that I'd just run off. Um, I did used to write to her, but she, you know, she, yeah, I hurt her deeply. Went to live in Amsterdam. Then I went to live in France picking grapes. Then I went around to Switzerland. Then I ended up back in France. Then I came home to my mother, and I was now 17. My mother saw me at the front door, and uh, I was this hippied out, you know, orange-haired girl with a long frock on now, looking all crazy. And she said, uh, you can bugger up for a start. She wasn't happy <laughs> with me. <laughs> and uh, I ended up then um, staying for the night at her house, and then I got myself a bed sit. And I started a little shop. And my mum and I had made friends, of course, very quickly, because she was the best person in my life ever. 
And um, I had this idea to try to do things in Coventry like I'd seen in Amsterdam and there was a lot of, you know, sharing of arts and people doing little hippie shops and stuff. And I'd found a landlord that would let me have his old shop where he kept his stock for his more modern shop in the centre of Coventry um, to, for me to do my idea of a, a hippie kind of arty shop where people made things and sold them and all that. Wow, and, uh, yes. So I did that and it was great. And there's an Irish guy and a guy from Yorkshire who came in and started making the candles and lampshades. And uh, it was just before my 18th birthday. My mum had been out with me to buy a sewing machine because I'd been borrowing hers because my, my job was making clothes which is what I used to do in Amsterdam. Um, and uh, she was buying me my own sewing machine now so I could make clothes quickly and sell them in my shop. And when we got to the shop with my new uh, sewing machine, um, the cops were there. And I said, what's going on? And they said, well, your work partners, I think, have um, broken into the shop or they had a key. And they've taken your landlord's stock from upstairs and you're not allowed in here anymore. Jesus so, crazy. Um, uh, they, they've done a really bad thing and, you know, did, uh, blew the trust that I'd worked out with my landlord who'd been very kind to me. Um, those guys ended up getting them suspended sentences or whatever, but the point was it had finished my little shop uh, idea and I ended up, again, travelling around England, which brought me to London. I hitchhiked down to London, lived in um, a health food store for a while. Then I met who I thought was the love of my life. And um, he he wasn't quite so convinced <laughs> that he was the love of my life. Oh. And uh, he, he accused me of being a hippie and living off other people all the time. And why didn't I get a, a proper job and earn my own money? So I did. And I ended up um, getting a, a job with um, a French cabaret dancing troupe that were going to Tokyo. And I, I, I only tried to get the job so that I could come home and say to him, I've got this job and I'm thinking of going. What do you think? So he'd turn around and say, no, don't go. I love you. I love you. And um, instead, he was thrilled for me and said, great, good, good on you. I'll take you to the airport. So I had to uh, go through with it. And I went off to live in Japan to do my dancing gig and missed him loads. Lived with that um, uh, the B-side of that Nina Simone single that I'd originally bought. Because the B-side of I Got Life was a song called Do What You Gotta Do, which I now do in my... Um, in my uh, oh, yes all the time because I love that song but it's really it's you know how music is for everybody it's like photos of your life and we all have our pieces of music and that was mine for breaking my heart wishing that uh, my boyfriend wanted me more than I wanted him um, and then uh, when it started to sound like he did want me um, he disappeared off to Australia for a few months and so my boss in the cabaret dancing thing said, do you want to go to Beirut next? We're going to Beirut in a week's time. Do you want to do the gig? So I said yes, because I thought still the boyfriend didn't want me. And I got to um, Paris 
to rehearse. And the boyfriend um, followed me there and said, I love you, I love you. Come to Africa with me. I'm going to Africa next. But I couldn't because I was already in contract to go to Beirut. So I went to Beirut and I felt like I was treading water there doing um, this dancing job in a place called the Crazy Horse. Um, whilst there, I promised the boyfriend I would then go out and meet him in Africa. And um, whilst I was there doing my dancing gig, uh, we were bombed by the Israelis, which um, had a profound effect on me, as you can imagine, because I was out in the, in this... Well, you saw it, because in the show I talk about it. I was out in my boat yes. in the middle of the sea um, when the first jets came over. And by the time I'd got to shore and was running to get my clothes all hell let loose and things were breaking, crumbling and bombs were dropping and the um, they were, then these jets were, um, what do they call it? You know, they go through Mach 2, supersonic. Right, they, they yeah, yes. And then they go through the air. Those sort of um, sound barriers. And it's often there we go. So that, that boom is as bad as the boom of a bomb breaking everything up. Things were just breaking all around, and I just thought, oh, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here, I'm a hippie, I need to be, you know, simple, more simple life. And uh, when I did get out of Beirut, uh, obviously that was when the civil war started, I went off and met the boyfriend in Africa, in Ghana, and um, it started off very well, you know, I put my hair in the ringlets overnight on the aeroplane so I'd be gorgeous when I saw him. And the minute I stepped out of the aeroplane in Ghana, um, it was so humid that my hair dropped down into, like, limp pieces of <laughs> horrible hair. And um, that's how it continued, really. We went through the jungle. We crossed the Sahara Desert. We eventually got back to England. And... Um, we split up about a year later, and it was that year later when I suddenly, you know, where was I? I was about 20 then, 2021, 20, and that's when I asked the question, what are you doing, O'Connor? And um, my brother Neil had uh, been in a band. He put a band together with some other lads in Coventry called The Flies, and they'd made um, a big record deal with EMI, I went to see his band and they were supporting a band called the Buzzcocks and then they supported a band called the Rich Kids which was Glenn yes. Matlock from the original um, Sex Pistols and going to see my brother and the bands that he supported and the energy of the people made me really want to be a musician uh, because until, up until that time I'd just been on the periphery of music, I, you know, loved my Nina Simone record. I loved Leonard Cohen. I learned to play, you know, Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Crosby, Steele's Nash and & Young. And all the songs I loved, I learned to play them on the guitar if they were easy enough to play. But n never thought about being a musician or a songwriter ever. And then uh, when I said to my brother, I'm loving this, I want to be part of this. How'd you do it? And he said, well, you've got to learn to write songs, Hayes. So um, I asked him to show me, and he showed me. Yeah. He showed me as best he could, and he explained to me. So I went to the School of Neil O'Connor Songwriting <laughs> Incorporated, and he taught me well, I think. Um, didn't know that I had a, 
you know, an aptitude for it. Really didn't. First few songs were a little bit, um, you know, oh, God, he's left me, blah, blah, blah type songs. And I thought, oh, I don't want to write those kind of songs. And then I realized I wanted to write much more politically things, really. Yes. And, and then it fell into place that uh, um, I made a little record deal. Uh, it was, you know, pounds they gave me for signing to them. And I didn't have any money to live on, so I was answering their telephones when the people that were doing Breaking Glass phoned up to talk to Hazel O'Connor. And I was the one that took the call. So I said, that's me. So I got an audition. Um, the director, I think, liked my energy. And then I went for a second audition, and they said, maybe you could write some of the songs, perhaps. And um, that's then I never looked back, really, because... Um, because I'm from Coventry, because I've, you know, everything I've done, I've done off my own back, and all my mistakes I've done off my own back, you know, like running away was a terrible mistake, a terrible thing to do to my family. But um, I take, you know, I own it. And the same with all mistakes. They sometimes have these golden linings, and I just use that to write songs and to be really, really keen Yes. Working class opportunists is what I'd call myself. Wow. And when they said you could write some of the songs, maybe, I was there like a ferret, right in a way. Um, and I hadn't really written much until then, neither. You know, oh. I'd written a few songs. And um, slowly uh, it turned around that the producers of the film said, we definitely want you to play the lead and you can write the soundtrack too. How do you feel about that? And I went, yeah, sure. <laughs> like as if I thought I could really do it. So I thought I could do it, so I did it. And yes. that's, that's my message to the world. <laughs> well, that's, that that's, is... You know, then it, it went great for a while, but um, I hadn't really thought about what I hadn't taken into consideration was fame. And it was fame that slew me, uh, not the rest of it. Um, I, you know, I'd had a, I'd had me past of, you know, drugs and on the road and being a runaway and all of those things. I've done all that, but fame is something you just cannot bargain for. Nobody can. I, I, you know, when I see kids on X Factor and all that, I think don't say you want to be famous. It's not true, because being famous is as if you're asking everybody to love you and nobody's going to love you. Nobody's going to love you like your mother, let's say, unless you had a crap mother. But otherwise, nobody nobody wants to know you really, that you fart or that you sweat or that you stink or any of those things. They just love the veneer. And uh, yes. that's the bit that I couldn't handle. Yes. Because it was interesting, because in kind of, I remember it was kind of the early 80s. I, I used to go and see all those angsty kind of films. And I remember there was one called Streetwise, which was about these kids living in Seattle. I think it was made by a photographer called Mary Ellen Mark. Unfortunately, all those kids kind of ended up pretty dead, I think, quite young. But you managed to survive that life you know which was quite you know the early bit before the fame bit which is quite an extraordinary thing because often it doesn't end well does it even so living yeah. sort of so fast and so on the road with so little resource apart from your own you know character you did really well to navigate so many things in such a quick time maybe that maybe not that I 
maybe that was my grounding in what I then went into, which was the world of fame, because I definitely wasn't your Joe normal famous person. I didn't hobnob because I was always I was always too shy, really. I you know liked who I liked. I met David Bowie and gave him a haircut because he was a friend of Tony Visconti, who's my producer. And I loved that. And whenever I bumped into him, I felt very friendly and he felt very friendly towards me. But I never, you know, went out for dinners and did all that stuff with people. And I'd always been embarrassed about myself. So in a way, I didn't change except for people around me changed. And that was very, very confusing. Yes. And obviously, at the same time, everyone wanted to be your friend, which must have been even more. Exactly. <laughs> and then, and then those people that signed me for the one pound years before came back into the picture because, of course, I'd made the film. I'd become very famous. They didn't want to let me go to another record company. So they stayed in the background. Then they came back into my life and said, well, we own you anyway. And um, I had to start making it with you, making records with them. And it was a very different experience to working with the film people or working with A&M Records who would put the soundtrack out for the film. Uh, it was different. It was not cool. It wasn't good because they weren't geared up to deal with somebody who was suddenly so immensely famous. Yes. For example, you know, I wasn't geared up, really, my mentality. I went to do one of those signings at Virgin Records store in, in London, and I turned up um, in on the, on the bus, and I got there, and there was like 2,000 people waiting to see me. Um, the next time I did that, I was now with the crappy record company, and they couldn't protect me and they couldn't keep it safe they they were just useless really useless. yes this is and um, you know I remember, yes, because I think Jimi Hendrix signed a one one pound record deal in the sixties, and so it's like, yeah, that's that's a bit. Yeah, that's too. Yes, it, it one pound record deals were the thing, and having spoken to a lot of people, the publishing thing is quite hideous. You know, it's just like um, ownership of music, ownership of. Oh your work. yeah, well these these scammers, they managed to get me to sign me record rights away and my publishing all in one fell swoop. Yes. Which is against the law now that people aren't allowed to do that anymore in music business law. You can't get somebody to, because it's a conflict of interest. You know, you need to have a publisher that fights on your behalf, not fights with itself. Yes. Because... <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, they had they had everything from from me and they were trying to get my management as well, which was lucky I didn't give them that. And so by 1982, um, I left them and of course they didn't let me leave so they took me to court um, and in 1982 the song Will You was um, well when we recorded it um, I'd written the song and then the musicians had been brought in by Tony Visconti for the session Wesley McGugan that played the sax solo um, played the sax solo was a session musician 
And then um, I ended up asking him, would he play in the band when we started touring after the film? And we'd been touring for two years together. And then he sued me for the solo because he wanted some publishing. And I offered him, uh, I thought, a very fair price, you know, a percentage of the song because I do think that that sax solo is gorgeous. Um, and But it was over my chords. It was over the music I'd already written. And then um, that carried on being in litigation for about 15 years. So everything on Will You was frozen financially, no money. Yes. And... Uh, the record company, obviously, they sued me. Uh, they they lost their battle, but nobody would sign me because it was still not sure whether I was free or not. Wow! Mm. Yes. And it just uh, and and then I just thought, well, this is really not great, and I've not had a life for quite a few years now, and I want a life. So it was at this point I think I did a BBC series called Fighting Back and I got great reviews as an actress and I wrote the the music for the, the you know the, the start of it and um, theme tune that was it and um, yeah every week it was a five part drama series I was getting great reviews and I thought well this is it I think I'll start doing a bit of acting now because the phone is not going to stop ringing yes. with these reviews and nobody rang, didn't get any more jobs out of it. So I just, that's when I packed my bags and went off to live in America. Because I thought, I'd rather be in America, not known, be able to make music again without any pressure than living in England, keep waiting for the phone to call, the phone to ring. And uh, so I went and lived in Los Angeles because I had a mate there and um, used to sing Bosking on the boardwalk in Venice Beach every weekend. Wow, that must and have been... And then, then I refound my music. Yeah, you know, I found the love of it instead of just the have to do it, uh, the pressure of it. It was over. I, I got rid of the pressure, sang songs again, and then sometimes, you know, you'd have your odd um, holiday maker walking down Venice Beach hearing Will You being sung and going, look, there's Hazel Connor, she's busking. <laughs> and, um, and that's how I lived for a, a year or two. And uh, then, of course, I put a band together there and uh, did my gigs around the Los Angeles area, which was brilliant. It was a new world for me. And there was no pressure. I didn't have to be anything. I could just be what I was. Yes. And by that time, I was playing with a, a black guitarist from Detroit. So all of my old love of Tamla Motan from when I was dancing around the handbag when I was 11 came into play again and started to have much more of, a, I suppose, a white soul uh, feel onto my music and an R&B thing, which is what has always been my, you know, my underlove of everything. Yes. And, um, yeah, and then that's where you find me because a couple of years into that, I was told I had skin cancer. And, that, um, and at that point, I thought, woohoo, I don't want to live in Los Angeles anymore where the sun is not controllable. I want to go somewhere... Now, I wasn't told I was going to die or anything, but the word cancer is frightening. Um, it's in my family. And I did realise a long time ago that if I was going to die, I wouldn't want to die in Los Angeles under a, a cloud of smog 
where people are not very... It's very hard to meet true people in Los Angeles. You know, everybody's false. You've got false tips, you've got false bombs, you've got false teeth, you've got false tan. Everything's false. Yes. And uh, I wanted to be somewhere real and beautiful. So I thought I'm going to now go and live in the land of my father's, which was Ireland. Why? And moved to Ireland. And Louis Walsh in those days used to be my agent. So I said, can you fix me up with some kind of, you know, TV gig or something for a minute so I can come over and look for a house? And I got on a show called The Late Late Show. The next day I went looking for a house. The next day I got a mortgage because, you know, the mortgage broker was a, you know, rock and roll kind of guy. And um, within two months I'd moved to Ireland. And then when I got to Ireland, the hospital uh, phoned me in Ireland and said they'd made a mistake with my results and it wasn't cancer. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that just adds adds to the uh, confusion, doesn't it, really? God damn. Well, that's that's why me and my husband and my dogs, we'd all moved lots stock and barrel. Yes, you went well. Easily made. And then I started doing music here and then I took an Irish band over to England and then started to be really expensive taking a whole band on on the road and um, somebody dropped out or something happened and it made me adjust what I was doing and I thought actually I could do an acoustic set of my songs which is then what I started to do and then I was working in theatre in Dublin on a WB Yeats play and I met this young harp player called Cormac DeBarra and um, he knew all my songs, but he was like 20 years my junior. And um, he knew how to play anything. He'd say to him, play Bob Marley on the harp, and he'd play it. But yes. he was a perfect harp player, beautiful guy. And then I said to him, do you fancy doing, you know, trying to write a show with me about breaking glass and the rip-offs and, um, the, you know, moving on from there? And um, my mate was a bass player called Herbie Flowers, who used to play. Uh, he did the bass line for Walk on the Wild Side with Lou Reed. He's a really, you know, top bass man, worked with David Bowie. Uh, but he was a really nice guy. Him and I got on so well with the same birth sign. And over the years, he's always phoned and said, how are you doing, Hayes? And so he said to me, I'm going to Edinburgh Festival this year. You know, I always go every year, put a show on, you know, tell people stories about the music industry. And, you know, I think you should go. And he told me a venue to phone up where he was working. And so I phoned the venue and that's, the rest is history. Yes. And I went off to Edinburgh with not a pound in our pocket. And then while we were there, we watched um, one of the artists that Herbie worked with, a jazz singer called Tina. She came out of her show and she immediately was selling CDs afterwards on a table outside. And I was shocked. I said, oh, Tina, do you not feel embarrassed selling your own wares? And she said, oh, darling, if I was a painter, I'd be selling my paintings on the street. What's the difference? This is our art. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> and a light bulb went on. And um, so I said to Cormac, we, we had a few cassettes up in the shop of the venue and I had a few CDs of a live gig I'd done in Berlin. And I said, should we try that tomorrow night then? And sure enough, we tried it the next night. And 
I would never, ever go back to being with a record company, is all I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. You suddenly think, oh, I can take control. Yeah, I was freed. And it's a hallelujah moment. It's bloody brilliant. And uh, we couldn't believe it. And I, I just thought, how stupid am I? That for years I thought that it was below me dignity or something, selling my own stock. What's wrong with that? That's what I do. I'm, you know... If I was selling medicine in the Wild West, I'd be out there with me horse and cart going, roll up, roll up, <laughs> great medicine for coughs, yes. stomachs and, you know, whatever. I just, it suddenly, that girl, Tina, changed my life, that's all I'm saying. And from then on, I realised that there was a way I could tour and it, I could afford to tour because if you didn't, if, if, God forbid, only 12 people came to your gig, you could afford to get a and b that night, or you could afford petrol. And I just worked and clawed back up. And like you say, you, you came to see one of those shows. Yes. And it became really successful. And, and the fact that we could do Breaking Glass songs with just a harp, which is a bit weird anyway. People would come in and look at the harp <laughs> and go, what is that? What's going to happen? Yes. No saxo, though. <laughs> yeah. But um, we got through it and yes. made a new, yeah, and carved a new path for myself, really. Yeah, well, and I remember, because I remember a few dec- probably decades now <clears throat> when Joni Mitchell brought out an album of kind of, uh, she'd reinterpreted her songs and, you know, the originals were like, you know, a bit folky and kind of a little bit more upbeat and these were much more melancholic and had that quality and you really concentrated on the lyric and thought, you know, both like, this is beautiful, a bit depressing, but, you know, that's why I love Joni Mitchell. And um, and so listening to that um, concert that night and then the album, it had the same effect because in a way you don't want, you're not 18 again or 20 when you first heard it. Right. You, you become an old person who wants to sit down at gigs and and uh, go, oh, that's marvellous. And then, you know, have a photograph taken <laughs> next to the artist and go, oh, that was lovely. She was nice or he was nice. And then, you know, you buy your thing and off you go. So everyone is kind of happy. But the reinterpreting of material, I think, is incredibly good, actually, because in a way I don't want to sort of see people trying to do what they did when they're 18. I mean, if they do, then that's fine. I'm not going to knock it. But, you know, at the same time, I'm, you know, like you, you've gone through ups and downs and all around and you just think, oh, this is this is kind of what I need on a on a Monday night, you know. Yeah. That's my Yeah, it's um, just, mm, well, it's wonderful. All I can say is it's wonderful. And even now, with the wonderfulness of it all has um, stayed with me now for so, such a long time because I've now been working with, I work with Cormac, um, on and off, but he's always busy going to America and whatnot um, because he's so in demand. But I also work with two other women, one who used to be in the Eurythmics, who plays piano and sings with me, and one who used to be in the Bell Stars. Is that Claire? Who um, plays sax, yeah. Claire, who, so, was, who, was, who would play, play with David Bowie at Live Aid. Exactly, yeah. Yes. And Claire and I have been friends since before that Live Aid gig, we met when she first came down to London on um, when she joined the Bell Stars, and we started a very fast and firm friendship since then. So we've been 40 years friends and playing songs together for nearly 40 years. Because when I was being sued, um, and I wasn't allowed to do 
gigs any not not allowed but nobody would give me a gig because I was it was so you know because I was so contentious um in 1982 Claire and I and a girl called Nikki Holland who used to be in uh, Tears for Fears uh, a girl she was yeah. we started a, a, a three piece jazz combo singing stuff uh, things that I loved but wouldn't be able to do as the punkette that I was supposed to be in those days so we did um, a whole bunch of things in those days and always wanted to do it again and it was you know 10 years ago I phoned up Claire and said do you fancy we do some of that stuff again because I really liked doing it I really loved it and at that point my mom had been diagnosed with cancer and I knew that there was no way I'd be sitting in Ireland twiddling my thumbs going, oh, God, how's my mom? How's my mom? I'd want to be in Coventry with my mum. Mm-hmm. And um, for as long as I had her. And so it, it was a kind of a natural involvement evol- that uh, Claire and I and another girl uh, who, who, because Nikki Holland had gone off to live in America years before, um, Sarah Fisher... We got together and did our first rehearsal and started working. I just said, let's do this. Because music, for me, is my passion. I love it. It's really a passion. And that means that doing it all the time with different people and finding ways of doing things is just its just a wonderful experience. And um, when I started working with Claire and Sarah... And, of course, we've been working now for 10 years together and we've made four records. Records, you don't call them records anymore, do you? <laughs> four DVDs, no, not DVDs, four CDs. Um, and we'll, we'll, I suppose we'll carry on till we're stopped by our health or by our Zimmer frames, I don't know. Yes. Because we, we enjoy... I mean, we're, we're all absolutely flattened by the fact that we can't play together this year because we had a sellout tour starting on March 17th, which is when more or less lockdown began. Yes, yes. Had another tour booked straight after that um, double header with um, Toya Wilcox. We were sharing a tour, which was really exciting, and that was really nearly sold out. Um, and that may be going on in September, but I, I'm not so sure that lockdown isn't going to just, you know, carry on for a lot longer mm, um, and uh, and I had to uh, breaking glass 40th anniversary tour happening in November which has now been postponed till next year yes. same as mine and Sarah and Claire's tour postponed till next March so uh, yes. which is already set up but you know it's just a weird one and so then here we are in lockdown I'm stuck in England I've just come back from France with me dogs in the back of the car. I've had a knee replacement operation done in France because it's cheaper than Ireland. I'd saved up for it the year before and I thought, right, I could take uh, two months off to recuperate while I'm in France. And my house in France is all on the flat, so it means I can walk every day, whereas in Ireland I live halfway up a hill. So that, and when you have your knee done, you're supposed to walk immediately and exercise so I've done all that, lived on my own there with my dogs, as my nurses, with my mates visiting, but basically looked after myself and um, then came back. And 
COVID had happened. I didn't even know it was happening. I was up there in my place in France watching DVDs. A few friends could come by and go, have you heard about this thing happening in China? It, was, it wasn't in my radar. Mm. And then I got back to England, and two days later, after my mates had come from Ireland to pick my dogs up because I didn't want to drive all the way to Ireland with my bad knee, um, and started tour straight after. So I was going to wait, begin the tour two days later. Dogs had been shipped off to Ireland. I'm sitting there, and suddenly all the tour starts to fall down like dominoes, no gigs. Mm. And then I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm here at my mate's house, but I want to be home. Um, so I had to stay two weeks in, in England first. And that's when the new phase happened, which I'm really pleased about because I'm not very good with um, technology. And Facebook is always a, a terrible, scary thing for me. But I learned <laughs> which buttons to press to do live streaming and my mate's husband played ukulele they had an, uh, an old uh, piano there so I said well let's do a live stream shall we so we sang Will You and he played ukulele and I played it on the piano um, and then I started chatting to people and then I'd go across the park when we were walking the dog and sing the song a cappella and um, I realised how wonderful it is, how freeing that you can still do some things and still sing because that's the bit that needs to be um, satiated in me. I I physically need to sing like I need to breathe. Yes. I need to. I don't need people going, love you, darling, love you, darling. I just need to make those bellows in my body work and sing a song and feel it. I just need it. So... Um, I started doing that, and, I, and I, the results were amazing. Um, I have great results for my posts. And then, you know, sometimes I go a little bit mad because I'm yakking too much like I have today, you know, talk too much and, like, put a gag on her. But in general, <laughs> then, that's what I do. And now this last Friday, I did a proper, proper, proper show, um, a post on my Facebook, and they were doing another one this Friday. And uh, because uh, my very closest neighbour is under two kilometres away and we've been in, they're the ones that came to fetch my dogs and we've been more or less in lockdown together. Yes. So I, it's having a great effect. I'm loving making music, just keeping making music and so many other musicians are doing it and they're putting things online and ah, it's just an amazing time. Yes. Well, and I, think... I like cheering people up, so it I... suits me. Yes, I was going to say that that connection is is incredibly important. I think actually there's going to be quite a lot of, um, hopefully when this kind of passes, there'll be quite an amazing kind of outpouring of kind of community, you know, and, and I think that hopefully will be one of the positives and hopefully there'll be quite a lot of positives coming out. Because going back to your show, which was only 20 years ago, I remember you, because you've obviously, you know, you are... As, as people like Lemmy were, were from Motorhead, you know, great survivors and had sort of done, you know, you know, all the, a lot of things that, you know, are ups and downs. But you did, I remember you talking about, you know, George Michael within that show. And obviously he's one of those people now and 
that has sadly passed. And you must, after sort of going through such a career, think, oh God, you know, there are, you know, you, you realise that it is a bit of a different thing when you're in your later years than you are in your early years. And then suddenly, you know, these people that you knew have sort of, they haven't managed to sort of navigate and survive. Does that, I mean, do you become much more aware of that kind of feeling? It, it makes me sad. Uh, yes, um, especially say people like George Michael, because when he was just starting, we were really good mates, and he used to come over to my place, and we'd go walking with my dogs, yes. and just and and you know, asking those questions that other songwriters ask songwriters, like how do you start, where do you start your song from, and he told me how he used to sit in his bedroom with a bass and just write up in his bedroom. And that's why a lot of his songs are so, not a lot, loads, all of them, are so well carved out because he's written them on the bass and the bass guitar is the very basis of a song. You know, it's the rhythm, it's the, the mood. it's And I, I, I don't know, I just, I miss those times with those people. I miss George. I didn't see him for quite a few years. I saw him when I was living in Los Angeles again and I'd just got married and we went to his gig and then went to his party and um, my ex-husband was in the same school as George and, and, and it's funny when you see your friends surrounded by, you know, oh, George, George, oh, God, you know, and everybody wants to be your friend, that one. But then for a minute, I... I I said, hey, George, it's Hayes. And we, we stopped and all the crowd sort of melts away and just you and your mate are standing there. And then when I introduced my husband to him and said, yeah, Kurt used to go to Bushy School as well. And the next minute, oh, George is standing there. Do you remember Miss Smith? Did she teach you? She took this. And you just think, oh, this is, this is the real time. This is our moments. Yes. And you take those moments like golden gifts and you put them safely in your heart and then, you know, you know that you then have to move away because everybody wants a piece of the action and we move back again and then suddenly everybody of that gang of people, are, George, George, I need George, George, whatever, yes. you know, then the sea of people returned and we, we you know, Yes. melded back which is fine but I'm just so pleased that there are certain friends that I've made that was not to do with hobnobbing it was just to do with pure fun because I'm kind of somebody who likes to have a laugh and fun yes. and I think I'm remembered and people love me for me for me silliness and the friends that I've made I make forever and um, yeah so I miss those those people and David Bowie, I, you know, he wasn't my best mate or anything, but I knew him and I was so lucky to have got to meet him and and hang out a little bit and give him a haircut when he asked me. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? All of those things, uh, those for me are real special moments. Yes. Um, and there used to be a band called, well, there was still probably Japan. Do you remember the band Japan? Oh, yes, yes. Well, the yes. original bass player was Mick Kahn yes. and yeah. Mick Kahn and I became really good friends sadly Mick died about 
three, four years ago of a brain tumour. Mm. But he was also an artist and a sculptor. Uh, he was just an all-round artist. But he was a, a really fun guy, and we shared the same sense of humour. And we stayed friends once we'd made friends for years and years just because of silly sense of fun, you know, of, of the stuff that... Yeah, that's the stuff that friendships are made of. And uh, those are all those, and uh, there's a zillion more of those kind of people. Um, but I don't see them. I'm, I'm up a hill in Ireland now. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> and it's interesting, just kind of lastly, because um, obviously, because, uh, you know, I, sort of, I was very into indie pop, which is kind of, it's, it's more of a sort of 83 onwards, whereas you were sort of much more there, you know, in that kind of period before that, alongside actually in Atoya. So was that an interesting kind of moment when, I mean, when did you first have that idea and, and, and sort of meet Toya? Because obviously a lot of people, <clears throat> you know, when they're in that kind of youthful period are, are sort of A, focused on themselves and everything feels a bit kind of competitive and so... You know, no, people aren't generally talking. Mostly, can, they'd realise they were more shy than being cool and aloof. But you know, shyness is kind of a bit like you know, I can be like that as well. Whereas you know, like with you and Toya, you know, you are kind of a, it's a perfect double bill because, a you know, you both create an amazing music that is still very memorable. Forty-two years later, in Toya's case, probably, um, and or forty. Yes, I was just thinking when it's a mystery came out and. Um, and so it must be nice to sort of look at each other and say, God, we've really done it, haven't we? You know, we've we've managed to navigate this this world that isn't good at the best of times and even worse for women. So that must feel quite an empowering thing to have a, a double bill with someone like that. Oh, it's, I mean, we were... Um, don't rub it in, David. <laughs> we were so looking forward to this tour because... Um, because of me having this operation at the beginning of the year and because Toya was making films and doing all sorts of other work, I asked everybody last year, knowing that I'd be in England and I was on tour in November, could we all agree on a day to rehearse together the songs that we were going to do together because we were going to do four songs at the end of the show that would be Toya and Hazel. Um, and uh, we all joined together, you know, to do those songs. And uh, so we all we all got together on the fifth of November last year, and practiced the four songs or tried the four songs out that we were going to do together. And uh, it was so sweet. It was just all lovely. It was even lovely down to the, the clothes we wore because I'd just come back from France as usual, and I just didn't have any clothes. So I had my old holy jeans and a little sweatshirt that was actually a pyjama top but it looked like a sweatshirt and me hat so I thought well I'll have to do because we were doing a, a photo session and an interview as well the same day yes. and Toya turns up with her husband Robert Fripp and she looked like she just walked out of the 40s you know with a lovely little red spotty dress on and um and quite demure actually so the two of us together just looked a really sweet sight, do you know what I mean? Yes. We were what we were at that moment in our lives. And uh, doing the songs together was just such fun. Yes. And and we, we were all emailing the next day, and, you know, I said, that was great, great what we're doing, I'm really happy. And Toya got back to me and said, oh, yes, it's brilliant, and the girls are great, you know, meaning Sarah and Claire. 
Um, and I think that for us ladies, um, <laughs> I, I can speak for myself anyway, I've never had such a wonderful time as working with two other women, with Claire and Sarah. Yes. Right, having sisters on the road. Suddenly, the things that, I mean, I, I love all the lads that I've, I've toured with, don't get me wrong, but there's something really nice about working with the female psyche. And so we were so looking forward to it with Toya, uh, all of us. And Toya, I think, was really looking forward to it with us. Yes. Because we're going to be, you know, girls together. And, yes. You know, there's no competition. It's oh, it, There was never any competition, but, you know, newspapers can make competition. They make it. We pretend that that's what's going on. Of course, it's not. Um, but, uh, well, anyway, we're just going to live in hopes. We're either doing that one in September or it resets in May, June next year. We yes, don't know. Absolutely. And just, and just have to say what his pronouncements are. Do you know anything more, <laughs> by the way? Yes, I'm not sure. Boris. Um, yeah, no, I don't really. I mean, um, you know, what can you say, really? But um, yeah. I, we, we do have this kind of magical three-week thing. I'm never sure why, but I try not to think about it because you think, oh, boy. But, um, yes, we'll just have to wait well, and you see. Could, it could be worse. You could be living in America. Yes. And your well, president would tell you to inject a bit of Lysol. Yes, I know. This is this is trying to... What an idiot! Yes, it's a mad, mad little world here. But what would you, just lastly, what would you say to a 18-year-old self if you could have, kind of after all these, you know, all the, you know, the experiences and wisdom you've picked up and, you know, the, the kind of good things you've done and, the, oh, that wasn't... You know, if you could have said something to yourself back then as you started out, I just wondered what, you know, would, would there be kind of something that you think, oh, yes... It would be. Don't think that you're ugly. And don't think that nobody wants you. Just want yourself... And the world will want you. Because that's what happens. That's what happens with all of us. doesn't matter what we're doing. We all go around thinking we're ugly. Nobody will ever love us. I mean, unless you're really lucky, you know, and you're full of confidence. And I think that's what I would say. I'd say that to anybody now and any child growing up, I would say. It's a bit like that film, oh, what was it called? It was a beautiful film. The Help. Did you ever see that film or read the book? No, I haven't. The My God, you need to. It's, a, it's, it's written about a, a girl from, you know, a southern uh, moneyed family who's gone off to work in mm, writing college and she's come home and all of her, her posh friends have all, um, you know, married, but she's not married. And they all were brought up, basically, by black nannies. Oh. The help. That's mm -hmm. why it's called The Help. Yeah, yeah. The black nannies um, have... and it, So it's a film or a story that shows you the two kinds of lives, yeah? Oh. And how, how all of these girls have been brought up by their nannies and how they got so attached to their charges and then they had to let them go and then their charges become, you know, right-wing little little bitches again, yeah? Yes. Um, and it's, that's, that's what the pretext of the, of the story is, mm -hmm. but there's so much more. And one of them, the, the nannies is looking after a little girl, a little fat girl, a little 
um, brought up by one of the the women that used to be the friend of this um, journalist. And she's never really given any love by her mother. The only person that gives her the love is the nanny. And the nanny, every day, thinks it's really important to say to this child, you is beautiful, you is kind, you is... All the positive things. Yes. And, um, and it made me think about that, you know, about myself. That I <clears throat> had always said horrible things. You know, my dialogue, my inner dialogue was always so horrible to myself. And as is everybody's, and unless they're really special people and they know their mission in life, we have this dreadful dialogue that says, nobody will love you, might as well go and eat worms, and all of that stuff. And um, to change that, and it's not anybody's, it's not parents' fault. You know, parents are too busy trying to earn a living to put food on the table. Uh, it's just what happens. It's the human psyche, I think. I don't know. Yes. And um, yeah, so that's what I would do. I would tell anybody, and I would tell them from the very beginning, you is beautiful, <laughs> you is kind, <laughs> <laughs> you is talented, you know, because everybody has their talent. Yes, Whether it's true. just chatting or if it's just smiling or if it's laughing, but it's really important to, and maybe like going back to what you said about the COVID. 19 maybe that's what we can take from it because it's bringing out the best in people in some ways yes and it's showing the worst in people too it's showing the stupidity of a president who keeps not listening to what the advisors say and telling people his his cures you know oh take my home cure go and take some chloroquine that'll help or you know <laughs> take some uh dettol and ingest it you'll feel lots better yes. you know we, we, we're slowly evolving again because we're having to artists like me are learning how to push the live stream button and when i make a mistake i own it and I don't care. And if people think, oh, God, I won't watch that again. But generally they do because they want to see if I'll make the mistake again. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think because I would do that. If I'm watching somebody and, and they go, it's a bit, a bit like Tommy Cooper. The Tommy Cooper version of comedy is, uh, and magic is like, here's a trick, I'm going to show you a trick, just like that. And uh, then he makes a mistake and you don't care because you love him. Yes. I know. It's and I think that's so important. The the love and the laughter together is really, really important. The most important. Yes. And from that springs everything that's wonderful in humanity. And yes. the other stuff, I think, springs the horrible poison that coming from ego. And I want to be famous, me. I just want to be famous. You just think, no, you do not. Shut up. That's not real life. Real life is loving and laughing and being humane and looking after the planet we've been given to live in before it all blows up or because, you know, we poison the air. Know. You know, that's the important stuff. It's and we're true. being taught the lesson right this very minute, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No, I do, I do think that's amazingly... It's a bit like you've... You've been told all the humans have all been like, go to your bedroom and have a think about what you've just been up to. <laughs> <It's> like, 
These are rather naughty children. Yes. You have not respected what you have been given. Yes, I know. So, <laughs> it's, it, it, so it is a bit like that, isn't it? Being something sent yeah. into your room. But look, Hazel, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. And um, yes, well, look, hopefully we'll catch up with you somewhere in Bungie, hopefully one day. <laughs> Is that where you live? No, I don't live in Bungie. I live in Norwich. But you, I, I saw that you were in Bungie recently. Yeah, uh, when we, I'm trying to think where we are next year because I've got, I did get the dates. Yeah. Anyway, the March dates were back somewhere. Yes, you're. <laughs> so in. I don't, can't remember when we we're up here. Yeah, yes, it's Sudbury. Actually, you're in Sudbury. Sudbury is the Sudbury, nearest. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, that's no, no dis- And look, well, thank you ever so much, and thank you again for all your amazing music, and uh, it still sounds great forty years later. How <laughs> exciting is that, eh? Pardon? How exciting! Oh. oh, but put your doodah on this weekend, Friday, eight o'clock. Oh yes. Definitely. Put it on, because it's really hilarious. I mean, I don't think I've got another one in me for a few weeks after this, because the poor guy that's trying to learn all my songs, like, weekly, is having a heart attack, and his <laughs> woman is like, you're going now, Rog, you know, take it a bit easier, because it's he's too much of a perfectionist to do himself an injury, mm-hmm. and I think I will too, so I think I might have to say no show next week. Okay, um, but this week... You're on. Uh, but this Friday, yeah, watch it because it's really good. But I got scammed, you know, about that. Oh, uh, I got to, I got cyber attacked last Friday. Oh, that one, yeah, never mind. And really badly, um, which was really sad because a lot of people then, um, you know, paid some, you know, because I had a tips jar first time I've done a tips jar, yeah. and um, they they did pop ups saying, you know, if you want to continue watching press this link um, and so people press the link even good friends of mine press the link and then they um gave some money with their credit card and it was to the scammers because i didn't want money i didn't want nobody has to they just can if they want to you see what i mean it's a big difference yeah it's nasty oh, well. so i had to do a post the next day saying if you've been you know we got in touch with everybody that night and they got in touch with their credit card companies but sadly then they they blocked their credit cards but then they had to wait for a new credit card to arrive yeah of course um but i don't think the scam has got away with so much because we got onto it straight away but it was a bit weird yes. it was a little bit confusing because i didn't know it was happening because i was in the middle of doing the gig and then somebody showed me um, a message from the guy that was running the thing the facebook thing from his end yeah saying Tell people not to pay any money. Do not, if you're asked for any money or bank details, don't give them. And yes. some poor people already had, oh, it was a disaster. Oh, so this week, um, you know, I've got one more week in me and then I think I've got to give it a rest for a week unless they lift our lockdown in Ireland. If, we lo- if, the, if it's lifted, they're talking about the fifth, that they'll discuss where they're lifting it a bit. It means that Cormac can drive down to me from from Dublin, and then we've got another two weeks worth of shows to do because him and I have got so much material. Oh, brilliant! Well, look, Hazel, I'm gonna have to go for um, our lunch. You're in not allowed. You're stuck now I am. forever. Groundhog Day. <laughs> this is true. But look, this has been amazing, and uh, yes, look, take care. Let, let's all survive this, and then we can all look back and go, "Phew!" And that'll be magic. Yep. But thank you ever so much again, and uh, yes. Take it Lovely easy. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> lots of love. Take care. 
Bye. All right. Take care, you. Bye-bye, David. Bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Hazel O'Connor. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time. Um, if you want to contact me for various reasons, I have no idea why you'd want to do that, but um, I feel the need to uh, give you the contact details. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. I am there. Make it, uh, well, keep it positive, otherwise, why bother? Um, that's what I say. Anyway, and what else? Yes, um, and like I said, uh, she has got a lot of tours coming up but um, obviously they may or may not happen we'll just have to wait and see but she has a very good website which has got obviously lots of w's dot then hazel o'connor.com and uh, hazel o'connor has no dot dashes or anything in but probably google you'll find them anyway look big thank you for the amazing hazel o'connor thank you for listening take care see you and um, speak again very soon <laughs>